Flip to Revelation 21, and uh, in your Bibles there, Revelation 21, verse 5, I'm really just picking up on the first part of that verse. So part A, Revelation 21, verse 5, A, calling this all things new. Let's pray, and then I'll read the text, and we will examine it. Our Father in heaven, you have proven yourself over and over again to be faithful to us, to an unfaithful people. At times we have doubted your word and the significance of your kingdom for history, and we are sorry. So forgive us, we ask. Help us, Spirit, to to see the excellencies of the glory of Christ for the redemptive purposes of the cosmos. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Revelation 21, verse 5 says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. Now, there are innumerable questions that we can ask when it comes to something like eschatology, and this is because there are innumerable questions we could ask about the Bible in general. Um, Why did God create the universe, for example? Where was God before everything was made? Those types of questions. Uh, Why didn't Jesus come the moment that Adam had sinned in the garden? Uh, What about the Christmas story? Why was it significant and important and central to the Christian faith that Mary was a virgin? So questions abound because, to a large degree, I think we struggle to take the revelation of God and then grasp it with our inept, sin-tainted faculties. We need the revelation of God for knowledge and for understanding, um, but that's hard to grasp when you have sin, uh, whether that's um, people dead in sin and or Christians who are dead to sin and alive in Christ who still have a mind that's not fully sanctified, that sort of thing. This is all, of course, because sin does more than affect our physical world. It also affects the metaphysical world as well. Um, We cannot and must not, therefore, go the existentialist route. We adopt this post-enlightenment rationalism, which pits the elevated mind against God. Uh, You know, Rene Descartes, this, I think, therefore, I am, cogito ergo sum. I, I think, therefore, because of my mind being elevated, that I don't need God, and thus we can rid ourselves of God. So we shouldn't go that route. And we also cannot and must not go the deistic route and posit a God who is rather unconcerned with our minds as it is. God's out there, and he's distant. And that's probably this vague Christian belief by a lot of Christians who would name the name of Christ, or at least who, the people who would say, well, I grew up in church, I'm kind of spiritual. You know, what does that mean? <laughs> And it's also true that we know from Scripture that the biblical God is not the author of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14.33. God is not interested in revealing himself in an unintelligible fashion. God is the creator, and God is the grand speaker. He and only he has the microphone on the stage of the universe. So in light of that, there is, out of all the innumerable questions, there's an important question that I want to ask this morning, and it has everything to do with what we've been discussing in this series. Why does it matter that the second person of the Trinity took on flesh? Why does that matter? Islam says that's impossible. Other, other religions have uh, and expressions, well, Jesus was Satan's brother, or there's these, there's these different views of God, God and especially Jesus. Why does it matter that he took on flesh? Why is it significant, indeed absolutely crucial, to the Christian faith 
that Jesus entered into space and time, shaking up the cosmos and making the revelation of God and the, the presence of God more, shall we say, palpable? The answer, I suggest, is this. Why is it significant that Jesus took on flesh? Because God is cre- He's faithful to His creation. He's faithful to His creation. He is committed to that which He intends to orchestrate for history. The Creator is faithful and loyal to that which He has created and ordained. See, God in the flesh came as a covenantally loyal God to bring about a new creation. But what exactly does that mean? The last couple of chapters in the book of Revelation um, build on Old Testament themes from places like Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Uh, in fact, Revelation is such a, a subject of speculation. If only we knew our Old Testament, we, we could actually pick up on a lot of it. However, that said, there's one key passage that John the Revelator pulls from, and it's the last two chapters of the book of Isaiah. When John catches a glimpse of what's taking place in heaven, that's the vision of Revelation. There's much occurring, by the way, in the, in the vision. He's getting a glimpse of the new covenant, uh, what we call the new heavens and new earth, and how it intends on transforming the world. That's the vision he sees. What's taking place in heaven is therefore preparation for what's about to happen on earth. For John, he you know, was exiled on the island of Patmos before A.D. 70. Um, Nero had put him there. Uh, he sees this vision of things that are about to soon take place. And these, much of Revelation is a vision of what happens when, uh, when Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem in, in A.D. 70. So what's taking place in heaven is therefore decreed on earth. What's What's decreed in heaven is decreed on earth, that sort of vision. And John alludes to Isaiah 65, 17, which Cody read, which reads, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. John also pulls from Isaiah 66, verse 22, which I'll read that, and it expresses a similar sentiment. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. So <clears throat> it's been aptly stated by several different people, of course. Revelation 21, verse 5, Jesus did not say, Behold, I am making all new things. You've probably heard that before. People have said that. Rather, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. This is, of course, a fine thing to say, but it doesn't really explain what it is Jesus is getting at. What are the things, <laughs> for one? What is that? Uh, we want to be good biblical exegetes, so we have to ask these types of questions. What is, what is new about them? This being the case, of course, I'm going to fill you in on my understanding of the verse, and I'm going to appeal to other scriptures in the process. <clears throat> when it comes to eschatology, you should always keep in mind some of the things we talked about in week one, and especially these concepts of continuity and discontinuity. Uh, if you recall from week one, we established the fact that there were two remarkable events which were extraordinary acts of discontinuity that could only come from someone above time, right, intervening in the continuous affairs of a sinful world. So human history had been continuously marked by sin and degradation, and there's this moment, there's these two grand moments in history when God acted. It was a moment of discontinuity. And if you recall, um, 
the Incarnation was one. The Incarnation was a great act of discontinuity, and the Resurrection is the other one. Those are the two moments of discontinuity where the triune God acted in history, in space, in time, for his own purposes. The death of Christ, if you recall, the death of Christ was continuous uh, with the sinful status quo, right? Men simply die. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die. He says the same as much in Romans. So that was continuity. That was, that was what was taking place on earth. Men sinned and we die. But something else happened, the resurrection. The resurrection, however, that's another discontinuity, the one that fulfills what the first discontinuity of the incarnation had set out to do. So what men have done in history to disintegrate themselves, Christ has come to capture these people and reintegrate them back into the covenant. Uh, I'll just say it this way. We're not supposed to be in a position of death. We're supposed to be in a position of eternal life. That's what Adam and Eve were supposed to. Presumably, they were to have at some point become so self-aware of what was taking place in the garden that they probably then would have partaken from the tree of life and lived eternal life. Something's stuck. I got it. Sorry for the distraction. <laughs> so Adam and Eve were supposed to live resurrection life, but they sinned. Now, <clears throat> if you remember from last week, the resurrection was the future breaking into the present in order to alter the course of human history. Okay? Moving it from death to life, from wrath to grace, from darkness to light. That was what we talked about last week. Because of the nature of this powerful resurrection, we are thus able to see what it is the New Testament is trying to teach us with regard to the new creation. So when you hear the word new creation and you see things like in Revelation or Isaiah, you need to tie it to resurrection. They belong together. In Paul's language, the individual has been transformed into a new creation. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Uh, if you're in Christ, behold, you are, and in Greek it just says, new creation. The, the word uh isn't even, even there. You're not a new creation, you're just new creation. In Christ, you're new creation. So that's the individual. In John's language, quoting Jesus Christ himself, the cosmos, the whole world, the whole universe, has been transformed into a new creation. That's Revelation 21.5 and Isaiah 65.17. In Jesus' own words, <clears throat> if you recall the interaction with John the Baptist in Matthew 11, Jesus echoes Isaiah 35 and this great eschatological fulfillment of the Sabbath and the new creation is now present in his own ministry. That's what Jesus is essentially saying in Matthew 11. The Spirit's regenerating power that bursts forth on the scene of history that Sunday morning of the resurrection was the defining moment of discontinuity when the new creation world became the new continuity. Okay? So, we, we oftentimes, our understanding of resurrection is usually relegated to one Sunday a year. But resurrection is the bedrock of our theology. That Sunday morning, when Christ came out of the tomb, that was when the new creation became a new continuity. Okay? What had been disintegrated had now become reintegrated into this new humanity. We call, I'm fond of calling Jesus King Adam II. 
Quite literally, the resurrection of Christ became a ripple effect which spread across the universe. Remember the tombs were open in Matthew 27? We talked about that last week. It was so powerful that other people were raised too. Mm-hmm. See, what heaven has declared, Christ is now implementing. How do we know this? Well, <clears throat> think of it this way. When Christ was raised, the disciples were able to recognize him, but only after Jesus had disclosed himself to them. Recall to mind the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They did not recognize him. Remember, they, they afterwards are like, wasn't our hearts burning within us? They didn't recognize the risen Christ. That's Luke 24. Yet Thomas was in, in, in uh, John 20. He was able to recognize Jesus and feel the hole the Roman nails had left behind in his hands. So, what we should conclude about this, this whole mystery of resurrection, is that there is both continuity and discontinuity. Jesus still had visible wounds. Had you been there in that room with Thomas, you could have put your hand and you would have felt the holes in his hand. There's continuity with what happened. Clearly, that's the guy who died. We saw him die. We buried him. Now he's alive and I can feel it. I can feel his hand. There's holes. So there's continuity. Interestingly enough, however, he also had a glorified body. Somehow Jesus, after his resurrection, was able to not only be the same person, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but it was obvious that he was. He was glorified. It wasn't the same guy who, it was the same guy who was dead, but he was different. There was something, something happened there. And every time somebody met Christ, they were met with astonishment. That's the resurrection power. See, the new had transformed the old, or perhaps, more aptly stated, the eschatologically new creates a new continuity, a new reality, if you will. It never annihilates or eradicates the old. When Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new, I'm going to his resurrection, and I'm saying that there's continuity and there's discontinuity. He never, though, annihilates the old. When you became a Christian, when Christ regenerated your heart by his Spirit, you're still you. You didn't become a new person. You're still a person. That's you. But something changed. God doesn't eradicate the old and throw it away in the cosmic trash can. Rather, he takes the old and he creates it anew. It's death to life. Heart of stone, heart of flesh. There's continuity. I didn't become a new Jason Garwood when Christ converted me. I'm still who I am. I'm still the person made in God's image, but I went from death to life. See, when Jesus says, Behold, I'm making all things new, he is not suggesting that another creation is going to come about after this one is destroyed. By the way, that is why 2 Peter 3 is most emphatically not talking about a literal fire blowing up the planet. <laughs> that was quite the view. Second Peter three, Second Peter three is not talking about um, Christ coming and blowing the planet up and creating something different. How do we know this? How do we know this? Mark this down, especially if you're a note taker. First Corinthians fifteen fifty three. This is a verse you need to know. First Corinthians fifteen. 53 reads with my emphasis for this imperishable excuse me for this perishable must put on the imperishable and this 
mortal must put on immortality. The resurrected Christ was the crucified Christ and not another person who came to replace the old. Okay? That principle is how we should understand Christ making all things new. That's why Peter is not talking about blowing up the planet. Okay? This is fiery language of judgment. It's purification. Paul says the same thing, whereas in 2 Corinthians, uh, your work's being burned up, hay and stubble. 2 Corinthians 3, maybe I can't remember. So, this principle is huge. As an artist, God is faithful to his creation, and thus he spends his time shaping and reshaping, molding and remolding, taking what was originally good, right? God created the earth good. He called it good, and man's very good. He's taking that which is good, which has sadly been marked by sin and injustice, and he makes it creatio nova in Latin, a new creation or a renewed creation. As time progressed, the old order was marked by aging and entropic census, which is a deterioration. It's just constant, um, constant falling apart. Life moves towards death. That's kind of the reality. Young moves towards old. Look at our current um, health market. Everybody's trying to find the magic pill that'll make you, uh, you young again. You're not supposed to get young again. You're supposed to age, but we speed that aging process up through various environmental things, you, you name it. But the way out of that, the way out of the entropic dis- deterioration of the, of the earth, the way out of death, the way out of all of that is the risen Christ making all things new. To, be, to ensure that I'm being understood, let me say this another way. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth stands in the middle of human history as the fulcrum on which the world pivots. This great eschatological moment was the future breaking into the present in order to reshape the future for glory. Okay? The new creation, what we call the kingdom of heaven, was not and is not an altogether completely different thing. Rather, it's the remaking of the old into the new. This Mortal takes on immortality, Paul says. Right? This perishable takes on the imperishable. When humanity sows, it reaps when humanity humanity sows sin, it reaps death. When God sows righteousness and resurrection, he reaps life. So when the new creation entered into history through the death and resurrection of Christ, the world was then set on a different path of one of righteousness and justice and peace. Everything changed that Easter morning. Everything. It was supposed to change. The, the discontinuity of resurrection brought forth this new reality, this new continuity, this condition, as I said last week, the kingdom of heaven on the earth. I don't know why we don't believe Jesus when he says, hey, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Not repent for the kingdom of God's going to come in the long, long, long distant future, but I got to die first and then raise. And then there's this awkward church age where things go a little haywire, but then the kingdom will come. Jesus demands that the kingdom is a part of his actual preaching. See, as we consider the, the theology that I just outlined, it's important to know <clears throat> that the process of all things being made new involves human vocation and activity. Okay? When Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new, you should know that that's not a moment for you to be passive. You're not a passive recipient of this. 
you are an active producer of it. You are involved in this. It requires human vocation and activity. Adam and Eve, they were created to be vice regents. They were to be rulers. And while obviously sin hampered this, this divine calling, Jesus, the second Adam, has brought us into himself, and thus he has brought us into this calling. Like this idea that Christianity is when you come to Christ and then you put your life in neutral and you don't do anything is insane. You literally want the benefits of salvation without the demands of it. It's awful. See, the vocation that I'm speaking of is it's tied to the Imago Dei, the image of God. Um, as image bearers, we know that our vocation is to reflect the glory of God, which is another way of saying we must obey God and we need to also see to it that all other areas of life know its obligation to do the same. I don't understand. Where, well, I do understand because we talked about it in the first week of pietism and pessimism. But I, figuratively speaking, I don't understand how you can read your Bible and not be propelled to action and work in all these different areas of life. And I've said it before, and I'll say it a million times, but the reason we have abortion on demand, the reason we have status tyranny coming through, whether it's medical freedom, um, gun rights, uh, intrusion on the family, you name it, all of that is because the church has decidedly stopped acting. So then the question is, what is the role of humans? <clears throat> well, the Christian answer differs from the humanist answer. For the humanists, the role of humanity is the ever-increasing process of self-actualization. We need to learn to be who we are, right, and express ourselves despite which may or may not be in vogue. Um, mantras, you've heard it. You do you. <laughs> you do you. I'm going to do me. You do you. So, right. Uh, speak your truth. These are the relativists' attempt at self-maturation. Okay? The relativists' attempt at self-maturation. Um, it's their sanctification program, by the way. You do you. That's sanctification. They have a doctrine of sanctification. Um, with God out of the picture, all that's left is you, and only you can be you, so you be you, I'll be me. No one can say anything different. Sanctification in this paradigm is entirely monergistic. The only contributing factor is self. Christian teaching is not monergistic sanctification. It's monergistic salvation, but it's synergistic sanctification in the sense that God controls it, but as the Bible says, you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who works in, you work it out. To the contrary, though, <clears throat> Christian doctrine believes that the role of humans is to speak how God speaks and act how God acts. Um, our vocation is one of mimicry. We are to do as Abba does. In all lawful areas of government, whether that's self, family, church, or state, civil, what we call civil, we are to bring that area into obedience and subjection through service and righteousness. Um, at the heart of it is the recognition that the vision, the vision of God from Genesis to Revelation is the vision of Leviticus. Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. Let me read this. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I, also, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. If you take a quick note at Revelation 21, 
verse 3, you'll see the same language. Over and over again, the, the mission of God is to dwell with His people and to dwell with His people in such a way that they are movers and shakers and actors, doing things. In other words, <clears throat> you might say that our calling is priestly, our calling is prophetic, our calling is, is kingly as we serve the living God. <clears throat> Think about it this way. Adam and Eve, Adam was placed in, in, in the garden temple, yet he disobeyed God, right? Desiring to, to dwell, God desired to dwell with his priestly people. Um, so then what did he do? Well, he, he dwelled in the tabernacle. He dwelled in the temple. Well, Israel, God's other son, they disobeyed. So we have this problem. God's dwelling with man. Man doesn't want it. So God doesn't just walk away and leave it alone, does he? No. We have two sons, two acts of disobedience, Adam and Israel. Jesus Christ, however, carrying forward the very same vision of God, dwelling with his people, became the cornerstone of a new temple, the stone the builders had rejected. See, Christ's activity thus became the foundation of this new temple. We talked about it a little bit last week, the city temple of God, which is the hallmark of the new heavens and the new earth. And that temple is us. The temple that John sees, the city of God, is the people of God. It's a vision of the people of God growing and expanding. It's coming into to the earth. It's the new bride of Christ coming down to dwell with us. See, Christ taking on humanity after humanity had traded in its image-bearing responsibility was the great reclamation and work of the kingdom of God. That's what the kingdom did. It took us out of disintegration and reintegrated us. We didn't want the image-bearing responsibility of priestly, kingly, and prophetic calling. We didn't want it. We threw it away. We traded it. But what does the kingdom of Christ do? It brings us back to it. That's our theology of action. See, the role of humanity then, if we want to be true to Christmas, is to exercise prophetic, priestly, and kingly responsibilities that we now possess as members of Christ. So what does that mean? Well, as we, we are to shed light in a dark world as prophets who herald the truth of God and reality. You spend any time on a campus or any time in the streets, Matt, you can testify. Their rebellion against God is, I like to call it, a functional nananaboo-boo. Their, their minds are tainted by sin. They don't think right. They're at odds with Christ. But as prophets, we are to help them think correctly. To not only point out illogical inconsistencies, where is true logic from? That's a prophetic calling. Well, as priests, we are to steward and care for the world, not least the people in the world, by providing assistance and healing and nurture those who are hurting. That's a priestly ministry. Think the Good Samaritan. As kings, we are responsible to manage God's covenant institutions by faithfully discharging our kingly calling to what we can call administrative guardianship of the covenant blessings God has given us. Let me tell you, the church is in the way, the condition it is right now, not only because it's forsaken the prophetic and priestly calling, but the big one is the kingly calling, administrative guardianship over the world. We have let it go to hell in a handbasket. We're supposed to guard it. 
And that means we have answers for the realm of money and healthcare and education. We have solutions to the problems that perplex society in places like politics and criminology. We stepped up to the microphone to talk about the Second Amendment, telling concepts that some of these people have never ever heard of, the doctrine of lesser magistrates. They have no idea. Why is that not known? Because we haven't told them. And we haven't told them because pastors don't preach it. And pastors don't preach it because seminaries don't teach it. And on and on we go. See, our task is the healing of the nations and the saving balm of justice and mercy uh, found in Christ. That's the only true and lasting balm. As image bearers, we are given this great responsibility, but we must understand the eschatological context in which it moves and has its being. Here's our calling. What's the context? When Adam and Eve had sinned, <clears throat> their ethical rebellion brought forth this, this eschatological context which separated the fullness of God's presence from them. Okay, Think of it this way. God was walking with them in the cool of the day. He finds that they sinned. What happened? Kills some animals, clothes them, exiles them. They're gone. They are away from God's presence in a way that was different from what they had experienced in the garden. Now, follow me because this is tricky. Quite literally, God in that moment had conceded space for Adam and Eve to live, the creation thus being subjected to fertility. Now, God could have left them in the garden and then risked their, you know, the tree of life and risked their own death because of his presence, right? Because if, if God's fullness of presence came to us, we gone, we're toast, right? There's just that sort of thing. Um, but God didn't do that. God conceded space. Uh, <clears throat> God does not, in an absolute sense, manifest his glory and omnipresence in the created order. So I'm going to say that again. God does not, in an absolute sense, manifest his glory and omnipresence in the created order. Otherwise, there would be no creation. Here's what I mean. Second Chronicles 6, 18. Heaven itself cannot contain him. That's what Solomon said. The condition that Adam and Eve had left the world in after their rebellion was not fit for God's presence. It was not fit. He's holy. The world has been subjected to fertility, tainted by sin, cursed. God cannot be present in that, in that way. You might say God had veiled his glory in order to execute his plan for redemption. Think of it this way. God held himself back. He held himself back. This veiling was a sort of remoteness, uh, and it was a, quite literally a spatial distance necessary to enter into creation in order to redeem it. Mind-boggling to think about. Adam and Eve sinned. God created a space, subjected it to futility, so that he could go and fix it. So the space of creation was a concession given to man in order for man to exercise subordinating dominion under the authority of God. That was the point. This, this is the eschatological context we have to keep in mind. While God had distanced himself in terms of the fullness of his presence after Adam and Eve had sinned, the goal, though, of the created order itself was and still is the presence and the fullness of God. He backed away, but it's still the goal for him to be present. 
the, the temple language, the, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, it's picked up in Leviticus 26, it's repeated in Revelation 21, is the way that God has chosen to speak about his dwelling with man. The whole Think of it this way, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, the whole of creation is the temple of God. It's the house of God, the place where God's Sabbath rest has to be located. But man, made in God's image, man participates to some degree in this glory and rest because in spite of his sin, man has breath in his lungs and he has a place to lay his sin-stricken, weary head. That's grace. But the eschatological context then becomes this this great unification of heaven and earth, the, the remarkable bridging of the gaps between God and man. And all of this is done through the gospel of the kingdom. Um... I don't know if I was going to draw this, but I don't have it with me. Think of these concentric circles, like heaven and earth together. Sin happened. They were fractured. What is Christ doing? Putting them back. If we can only use two-dimensional and 3D analogies. That's the idea. (coughs) When God broke in that starry night, when Christ was born, That was the moment when creation began to lose its space outside of God and becomes, by God's grace, a place where God comes to dwell. There is this mutual indwelling. Uh, The world is in God's presence. God's presence is in the world where, where humanity is made new. The creation is made anew. That's what Christmas is all about. See, atheism... Atheism posits a formula where God is rolled up into man's collective reason. Right? Man, man becomes God. Pantheism, which, by the way, pantheism is a huge problem today. And it's, it's really married to statism. Um, but you have some atheists, you have some statists. Or you, have, you have statists who are atheists and statists who are pantheists. It's a problem on both sides. But pantheism and paganism posits a formula where nature is rolled up into God. Uh, Greta, you've heard Greta. How dare you? How dare you defy the God pantheism? Stop with the carbon emissions. We need to save God. That's the language. That's the, that's the mantra. To the contrary, Christians, <laughs> Christian teaching says that there is this mutual indwelling where the created order remains distinguishable from God. Okay, So God is in the world, and the two are still discernible. They're covenantally discernible. Uh, we, we will always know for eternity that which is God and that which is not God. No one in eternity is going to roll up and say, I'm God. No, 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 no. You're not. He is. Not you. That's eternity. So, the, so the, the point of this eschatological context, as I see it, has everything to do with what it is we are laboring for. We have this great task of healing the nations. That's our job. We're trying to heal America. But we have this task set within this context of God's great plan to dwell with man. And because of the resurrection of Christ, this grand reversal of sin and spatial distance is now being undone. Think of it this way. When the kingdom advances, God's presence is more and more palpable. Think of it that way. All things new means the transformation of the world in order to make it a space for the fullness of God's presence to dwell. See, that's the vision of Isaiah. That's the vision of Revelation. This new heavens and new earth, 
the new temple people of God, is the means by which all of this is accomplished. And our labor is not in vain because our labor serves this great plan. That's why the church is so inept today. We're lazy. We don't feel obligated to this eschatological plan. Not at all. Because we've for so long believed we can just put it on cruise control, kick back, take a nap, and at some point it's just going to go to hell in a handbasket and God will just zap us away. No, we have a responsibility in the here and now. And what I find absolutely thrilling is the fact that the inbreaking of the kingdom, the moment Christ was born, the kingdom being legally set forth in his death and resurrection, that becomes the basis for God's plan to reverse the curse, far as the curse is found, right? And create a world where sin is finally dismissed and holiness runs rampant. That's thrilling to me. From thenceforth, God has determined to undermine the forces of evil, putting a progressive end to the problem of sin and injustice. A few more thoughts and we'll be done. As I see it, we, the church, are working towards this great goal and it will be self-consciously realized as history progresses. People don't know it now, but they will. Uh, Van Til will call it epistemological self-consciousness. We're going to know. We're going to know as history goes forward, this is the context of eschatology, this is our calling, and we're going to fulfill it. It may not be our generation, it may not be our children's generation, but it will happen. It will happen. As the gospel goes forth, and as the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, men will, I promise you, men will self-consciously see that this is where history is headed, and they will know. We are still in the early church. Not the first person to say that. It's still very early on in the eschatological plan of redemption. But we are working towards this moment when Christ ends history to bring this plan to completion. He intends to do it. I had someone recently tell me that, uh, I, I don't remember when I had sent this in a sermon, but I don't even think I'm the first person to say it, but when Christ gave the Great Commission, do you think he was giving them a plan that they would lose? No, he expected it to happen. Which means that we should be working, I think, to living longer. Cody, you read Isaiah 65, verse 20. That's a promise for now. There's no death in eternity. Isaiah is not describing eternity. He's describing history. If you die under 100 years of age, it's like dying as an infant. There's no death in the future, new heavens, new earth, the final consummation of eternity. There's no death. He's not talking about that. We should be laboring for that. The current humanist-driven reductionist allopathy we call conventional medicine isn't going to get the job done. Living well beyond 100 years should be a goal, but it isn't going to happen with a humanist in control of food and health, which isn't food and isn't health. We should be seeking worldwide peace, but not through military, the military-industrial complex of American foreign policy, which is, I believe, a recapitulation of what was affectionately called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. We're doing the same thing the Romans did, conquering by destroying. We call it peace, but we're destroying nations. And we're signing trillions of dollars into budget again, and we think we got it figured out. Peace can only come from the Prince of Peace, and that's only when the gospel is tasted and seen.
We should also be working towards technological development to reverse the curse. There are good, these are all good and righteous things. However, we have to do it with this eschatological context in mind. To try and rebuild the Tower of Babel when the temple of the living God, the church, is here, that's a fruitless endeavor. See, our aim is the kingdom of God made palpable and present in the affairs of mankind in all of men's hearts, their minds, and institutions. So, friends, all things new is our aim. The resurrection of Christ is our confidence. We have what we need, so we must then, if we are to have an eschatological Christmas, get to work to roll back the entropy and decadence and see to it that God is welcome to, gr- to dwell with us. So what do we say a lot? <clears throat> grab a sword, grab a shovel, and build. Let's pray. Uh, we Lord, Lord, we thank you so much for your grand vision in Revelation. Uh, a grand vision that you intend to accomplish in history as sin is rolled back as moral decadence is rolled back, as, as the, the problem of entropy is rolled back, God, you desire to make all things new, and we rejoice and glorify you in that. Father, I, I, I have a bold prayer to ask of you, and, and I ask that you would wake, wake your church up to these truths, to these realities. We are still stuck in a paradigm that thinks if we can just vote the right president in, everything will magically be okay. We're stuck in that paradigm and it's, it's painful to watch. God, I pray that you would give a revival of localism a revival where the people of God, instead of thinking that if they just vote the right guy in, as if the Republicans have done anything to end abortion, that we would repent of that and instead work locally for liberty and justice. So we pray for your church to wake up. God, and if it's not your will, then please be ever so patient as you already are, because we deserve far worse than what we have going on now. Father, would you give us repentance by your Spirit. In Christ's name I pray, amen.